the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the Daily Show Prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Hey, everybody. Back tomorrow. But sitting in for me today is Amala Punobi. Young 20s. She's a phenomenon. She has her own podcast up at PragerU. She has a vast following and for good reason. She's bright, lively, happy, wise, and a fighter. You'll understand why in just a moment. Oh, man. Good morning, everybody. I never get tired of Dennis's introductions. What a sweet and wise man. I'm your sit-in host today, Amla Panobi from PragerU. I'm 22 years old, currently residing in Los Angeles, working for PragerU on a show called Unapologetic Live that's on all social media platforms, all podcast platforms. But I'm sure if you're a regular listener, you've probably heard me before. I've guest hosted quite a few times on the show. But for those of you who don't know me, I am a former radical leftist turned conservative, and I have a big thanks to give to PragerU for really making that happen, as well as many other conservative names, Thomas Sowell, Larry Elder, Dave Rubin, who's now a conservative. Uh, these are people who I found on the internet and grew accustomed to in a search for, for answers to questions that I had while I was a radical leftist. I became very depressed and just had a, a lot of disdain for the work that I was doing. I was going around indoctrinating young people into leftism, socialism, feminism, all the buzzwords that you can think of. I was talking to young people about and I grew tired of this about a year after starting the job and realized that so much hypocrisy was going on uh, behind the walls of the organization that I was working at. And I just had all of these unanswered questions. And when I brought these questions to people that I was working with, I was basically shunned from the community. And this is something I'm sure many of you are aware of oftentimes with all sides of the political aisle. If you don't agree with everything all the time, you are casted out. Although I do think the the problem is far more pervasive on the left. So I had that experience. And Rather than going through the typical story that we start off the show with, I want to talk about something really special. Today at PragerU, we've released our 500th five-minute video, which is just insane if you guys are familiar with PragerU and our organization. The five-minute video, which is basically truncating all these different issues about lifestyle, politics, the economy, anything you can think of, truncating these ideas into five minutes and just giving them to people to uh, help in their education, to give them something to think about, 
We've been doing that since the organization started, and now we have our 500th five-minute video titled, Why Do You Hate Conservatives? And it's special to me because I actually got to be the one to present this video. And I would have never imagined if you'd told me four years ago that I'd be in a five-minute video. Never would have never would have imagined it. I would have told you you were crazy, that I would never put myself in a room full of conservative people and certainly wouldn't espouse views that they would, would look kindly to. So I'll tell you a story that is an introduction for myself in, into PragerU. When I was around... 16, 17, 18, I'm not quite sure now that the time is sort of blurred together. I was pulled over by a police officer late at night driving to a friend's house. And for me at the time, this was a nightmare. I had grown up in a very left-leaning household, as many of you know, and I was very much indoctrinated with the idea that police officers were racist. Not just one of them, but all of them. The entire system was pitted against black people. And for those of you who don't know me, I happen to be biracial. So I grew up with the stories of Tamir Rice, Philando Castile, Eric Garner, Michael Brown. And even though these were all black men who had unfortunately lost their lives to to police officers or to a police encounter, I was convinced that had I ever been pulled over by a police officer, that encounter was not going to go well. And of course, I I went through a leftist training of what to do when police officers pull you over. Yes, sir. No, sir. Turn your phone camera on to make sure you get the encounter on film. Put your hands on 10 and 2. Just be respectful and hope that nothing happens. And of course, in my mind, Something was going to happen regardless of what I did. I could be an upstanding citizen. I could follow every rule in the book. But because I was a half-black individual, this police was going to target me. Of course, in retrospect, uh, this sounds totally irrational. But you have to put yourself in the mind of somebody who's grown up with these stories and just has this view of police officers and that profession. So... I'm driving to a friend's house late at night and the cop lights come on. I hear a quick little siren and immediately I am freaking out. I mean, shaking, crying, hyperventilating in my car. I do my best to pull over and the cop car just gets right behind me. And to my dismay, a a white man gets out of the cop car. Again, this so this sounds so ridiculous, just uh, recounting the story, but a white man, a white male police officer gets out of the police car. And of course, that is my worst nightmare. This is how I go out. This is going to be the headline tomorrow in my mind. And he walks up to my car. I roll down the window and Of course, he's looking at me just shocked. Why is this girl so upset? Why is she crying? Why is she just acting so dramatic? I was probably just speeding. And he stood there and he said, hey, I want to let you know that I'm I'm, I'm not here to hurt you. You're just driving a little bit too fast. I wanted to let you know I'm not even going to give you a ticket. Just, you know, collect yourself and, and head home. And I must have felt like a fool at the time. I really don't have uh, enough memory to, to truly to truly say that. But I sat in that car for a little while collecting myself. And eventually I got to this line of thinking that what just happened to me? <laughs> How was this cop so nice? And it, it seems to me as though he had 
a pulse on the media and what what his profession was looking like and maybe he knew why I was crying and why I was so dramatic and that's why he said those very important words I'm not here to hurt you or maybe he didn't and maybe he'll never know how important that moment was for me but that is what he said and I started to think that either a I had been tricked by the people that I was working with to think that police officers were these horrible individuals or B, I just met the one good police officer in America. And I grappled with choosing between those two options for quite some time. And I ended up going on the Internet to not not to challenge my beliefs, but to reinforce what I had already felt about police officers. So I started looking up stats about racism in the police force and people who they were targeting. And guess what popped up? A PragerU five-minute video titled Cops Are the Good Guys. And I saw that title and I thought this is going to be the most racist piece of media I've ever seen. Click! <laughs> and of course, I click on that five-minute video, and it's not a white male cop presenting this information to me, although now, to me, that does not matter. But at the time, it was very important. In fact, the presenter was a black sheriff by the name of Sheriff David Clark, and he started going through all this information about what it's like to be a police officer. He talked about the fact that police officers are really not the ones who are going out and creating these encounters. It's the people creating these encounters. And there's a lot of policies that lead to uh, black people being in these encounters with, with police officers, but it's not conservative policies. It's leftist policies that are causing this uptick in crime. And he goes through all these different issues that I had at the forefront of my brain at the time because of this encounter that I had with the police officer. And by the end of that five minute video, I thought I need to know more. So I went down a rabbit hole of just seeking out new information, questioning my own beliefs, and it was a tough one. I didn't want to accept the information that was being thrown in front of my face. And we'll talk about that later on in the show today, because it's a phenomenon that I think a lot of people are experiencing right now called ideological subversion. I was certainly ideologically subverted at the time. Didn't want to hear a word from PragerU. But that video blew my mind. And I certainly couldn't believe that the words that were coming out of his mouth were words coming out of a black man's mouth. How ridiculous is that now? But that was my thinking. So I go down this rabbit hole of watching all these different five-minute videos. Then I find Tom Sowell and find Larry Elder and Dave Rubin and all these people who are going through their own journeys politically. And Tom Sowell is really who cut through and cleared the fog a little bit for me, cut through all the noise because he sat and just spoke with such authority without really injecting bias or his own personal feelings into what he was saying. He was simply sharing the, the data that he had collected. He was simply sharing the research that he had collected in his many years working as an economist. And so much of that broke through the noise for me. It was so nice to hear something clear, but also it was devastating. It was devastating to realize that the ideology that I had subscribed myself to for my entire life could be false in some way, shape, or form, especially since I had dedicated so much time working on it 
not really thinking about it, but pushing it to other people. And when that wall breaks for you, it can be something that you try to run away from or it can be something that you embrace. And you better believe I tried to run away from it. But PragerU really helped me uh, find my way out and find some new answers. And if you'd like to find some answers, you can check out PragerU.com. And if you'd like to support our work, PragerU.com slash donate. We'll be back. The Fed is unstable. Interest rates could go up at any moment. If you're relocating and need to buy a new home or invest in real estate, get fully underwritten and approved with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian at Sierra Pacific Mortgage before you make an offer. Their fast-track approval process will allow you to compete with cash offers, whether you're buying today, tomorrow, or a year from now. Even though housing prices are stabilizing or coming down, economic uncertainty, supply chain issues, and limited construction means the real estate market is limited and competitive. Go to andrewandtodd.com. That's andrewandtodd.com right now. Get fully approved today and have confidence so that when you're ready to buy, you'll have the money ready to go. Don't wait. Go to andrewandtodd.com. Lock in today's still historically low rates. Go to andrewandtodd.com. That's andrewandtodd.com. Hi, everybody. Good morning. I'm Amla Benobi, your sit-in host on the Dennis Prager Show today. And PragerU has put out their 500th five-minute video, and I got to be the presenter for that, which is just an amazing opportunity. And I'm so thankful and honored to be the person to do that. And it's titled, Why Do You Hate Conservatives? You can check it out by going to PragerU.com. But I also like to play that for you today. So here's our 500th five-minute video, Why Do You Hate Conservatives? Why do you hate conservatives? Well, let's not say hate. Let's say dislike, because you don't really hate anyone. You may dislike them because they want to ban abortion. Conservatives say they're all for freedom. But when it comes to a woman's freedom to choose what she wants to do with her own body, they sing a different tune. You may dislike them because they oppress people of color and deny the fact that America is systemically racist. Conservatives say that everybody is equal regardless of race, and that racism has little to no effect on the daily lives of people of color. So, they just ignore the issue altogether. You may dislike them because they don't believe in climate change. Scientists keep telling us we're overheating the planet, and conservatives don't seem to care. They're more concerned about profits than people. But what good is money if you have no planet to spend it on? You may dislike them because they're obsessed with guns. How are we ever going to stop gun violence if we don't get guns off the streets? And how are we ever going to get guns off the streets if conservatives block every common-sense gun law? You may dislike them because they're so intolerant. What's the harm of calling somebody by their preferred pronouns? Why can't conservatives just show some compassion instead of obsessing over every kind of behavior they don't like? You may dislike them because if they got their way, they'd get rid of democracy and establish an authoritarian theocracy. Bye-bye, separation of church and state. Hello, fascism. After all that, you might sum up conservatives with one word. Ugh. If any of this resonates with you, I get it. I've been there. But, and this surprised me, I found they actually have reasons for thinking the way they do. Here are some of them. On abortion. To start, we can agree that no one likes abortion, but there is a clear divide on the issue. Progressives focus their attention on the mother. Conservatives, while they have compassion for the mother, focus their attention on the baby. 
They see a human being growing in a mother's womb as innocent and vulnerable. Those babies deserve to be protected since they obviously can't protect themselves. On racism, conservatives don't deny that racist people exist, but when it comes to the narrative of systemic racism, conservatives are unconvinced. Of course, there are disparities in this country, but why assume that these disparities are because of racism? Good schools, good parents, good habits, and good communities would go much further toward alleviating poverty and expanding opportunity than a lifetime of racial justice movements. By the way, these rules apply to everyone, regardless of skin color. On climate change, conservatives have very little faith in computer models that have been inaccurately predicting disaster for nearly half a century. Conservatives have a lot of faith, however, in human ingenuity to overcome climate. What is air conditioning but a human adaptation to the environment? See Miami or Phoenix for further reference. This is not to say we should simply do nothing. Nuclear power, for example, holds so much promise as a renewable and safe energy source. Conservatives don't understand why environmentalists oppose it. It makes them skeptical and suspicious that the real agenda behind the environmentalist movement is not saving the planet but giving more power to the government to control people's lives. On guns, we all want to live in a safe society. This is why firearms are regulated in every state. But we know bad guys will always find a way to get guns. See Chicago and Baltimore for further reference. That's why conservatives want guns, to protect themselves from the bad guys. It's not much more complicated than that. Okay, we're going to go ahead and take it back from the five-minute video. Uh, there's more. You can check out the rest by going to PragerU.com if you'd like. We really worked hard on uh, coming up with this concept for what the 500 uh, five-minute video was going to be and writing it, which we're going to talk to Alan Estrin in the next segment, The Living Martyr, as Dennis calls him, co-founder of PragerU. And we're going to talk about the importance of words when writing these five-minute videos. I know some will think, well, it's five minutes. How, how much could you truly get through in five minutes but you would be shocked to 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 see what we're talking about in such a small amount of time and when we went into this video in particular why do you hate conservatives for those of you who know me you know i'm sort of a, i'm a softer conservative hate was a really strong word for me so when we started this five minute video i wanted to right out of the gate say well let's not say hate let's just say you dislike because you don't hate anyone and sort of soften the conversation that we are having when it comes to bridging the gap. This is something that I find is really important. When we're talking about left-leaning people or even very woke, radical leftists, I think it's important to remind ourselves that we're all capable of being in that very same position. A lot of us would think, no, I would never would never believe the things that they believe. And for me, I just had experience living that life, believing those things that they believed. So I, I never view myself that way. I think we're all capable of having bad ideas, of believing bad ideas. So I wanted in this video to bridge the gap between our different sides of the aisles and say, here are some reasons why we believe the things that we believe. Here's how we got there. And of course, you can't fit in all the different reasons why conservatives support certain issues and don't support others. But it's important to at least give a small summation of, of why we're there. It's important to try to understand the individuals that we disagree with and to talk to them and have important conversations. And like I said, you can check out that 505-minute video at PragerU.com titled, Why Do You Hate Conservatives? That's PragerU.com.
titled Why Do You Hate Conservatives? And if you'd like to support the work we're doing here, the work I do on Unapologetic Live, you can go to PragerU.com slash donate. We are changing lives every day, and PragerU has changed mine. We'll be back. Most of us know that being online means that everything we do is under constant surveillance, whether it's big tech companies creating detailed profiles of our personal lives or government agencies scanning our emails even when we haven't done anything wrong. Our privacy has never been more at risk. How can we make sure our personal information stays private? The first thing is to switch to a secure email service such as StartMail, which keeps emails safe. Every email can be encrypted or protected with a password, which means no one can read, scan, or sell your private information without your consent. When you delete an email, it's gone forever. Another thing I like about StartMail is that you can generate unlimited disposable email addresses so I never have to give out my real email anymore. Switching to StartMail is simple. Your emails and contacts are transferred in a few clicks. Sign up with StartMail today and you'll get 50% off your first year. Go to startmail.com slash Prager. Good morning, everybody. I'm your sit-in host, Amla Benobi, sitting in for Dennis Prager today. And as I said before, we have a special guest on the segment for interview right now, and that is the co-founder of PragerU, Alan Estrin. Alan, welcome on the show. How you doing? Oh, okay. I guess we don't have Alan at the moment, but let's get into uh, the talk about PragerU in our, our five-minute videos. As I said before, with PragerU, the bread and butter of this organization is those five-minute videos. We have five-minute videos on a, a number of subjects. Our most recent is Why Do You Hate Conservatives? We have our pipeline safe. We have videos on nuclear energy. We have videos on what your kids are learning in school, what's wrong with wind and solar, lifestyle, dating, relationships anything, you name it, we have a five-minute video on it. Well, maybe hopefully not because we want to go from 500 to 1,000. But what I think is so interesting about the process, and I'll give you a little bit of a, a dive into what we do behind the scenes, is Alan and his team will come up with a concept and they just sort of start scribbling and writing a basic outline for what these five-minute videos are going to look like, what message we want to get across by the end of it. And for mine... Why do you hate conservatives? We wanted to talk about all the reasons that a left-leaning person could possibly have uh, a negative look on, on conservatives. So we ran through a few. We talked about systemic racism. We talked about abortion, which is a hot-button topic right now. We talked about guns. We talked about intolerance and the idea of, of what upholds a democracy and keeps it running. And we laid out what a left-leaning person might think about conservatives, and then we gave our rebuttal. Well, here's why we believe what we believe, and, and here are the reasons and the avenues that we took to get exactly to where we got. And at the end, we ask a question, and it's a very simple one. <laughs> After hearing all of this, do you still dislike conservatives? And, and maybe maybe you still do, or maybe that, that dislike has gone down a little bit, but that's what we're trying to do is, is bridge the gap here. And I want to talk about why that's important, because in the culture today, there is a lot of people, particularly young people, who have this idea of toxic relationships. I'm sure you've heard the word toxic a lot over the past few years because it's just sort of entered our, our space as a culture to refer to things as toxic 
toxic masculinity, toxic patriarchy, toxic systemic racism, toxic police officers, this and that. Uh, And now young people are having conversations about toxic family members and toxic friends. And this idea that if somebody doesn't support what you believe a hundred percent then maybe they shouldn't be a part of your life and you should cut them out and this is a battle that i went through personally and that i witnessed personally you all know i had a left-leaning mother i have a left-leaning mother she's still with us thank goodness and we went through a contentious period when i sort of came out of the closet as a conservative as you can imagine that was a little bit rough for her as it might be for conservative parents who have a very radical left-leaning child so we went through a contentious period of talking to each other about politics and getting in these fights going back and forth on any given issue on any given day and eventually we just decided hey Politics is maybe not a part of our conversations at the moment. We can let that slide for a little bit and we can come back to it at a later date because it's not worth getting rid of our relationship and losing that relationship for the sake of these squabbles that we could have with anybody at any given time. But that, I feel, is something that a lot of young people aren't doing anymore. They're deciding to cut family members out of their lives, stop talking with friends who they disagree with, and just leave them out. And I believe we do have Alan on now. Alan, how are you? Hi, Alan. Amala, how are you? I'm doing well, Alan. Uh, we we have we have a, a minute left in this segment, but I just wanted you right, right. to to say hi, uh, and I wanted to let you know that we're going to bring you back in the next segments to interview about this five minute video to talk about your process because I feel like you're the one to truly talk about that. <laughs> Great, great. I'm looking forward to it. Great. So as I said before, we spend a lot of time just carefully curating the the words that are put into these five-minute videos and the message that we get out. A lot of people call out PragerU and they say we're careless with the takes that we put on the internet and the videos that we produce, and they could not be more wrong. There is a very strong and important and and complex process that we go through to get these videos and these ideas out to you. And if you'd like to check them out and see what we're talking about on the show today, go to PragerU.com. Again, that is PragerU.com. And we'll be back with Alan in the next segment. The Dennis Prager Show. You all have helped build my pillow into the incredible company it is today and have trusted in Mike Lindell to give you a great night's sleep. On top of the special available to my listeners on the Percale and Giza Dream bed sheets, marked down as low as $29.98, Mike is now changing the game with his three piece towel set. This set is made with USA cotton, making it extremely absorbent yet still providing the soft feel you look for in a towel. This set comes with one bath, one hand towel, and one washcloth, typically retailing for $49.99. For a limited time, you can get this three-piece towel set for the low price of $19.98 with the promo code Prager. Don't miss out on these extraordinary offers. There's a limited supply, so be sure to order now. 800-761-6302. Use the promo code Prager or go to MyPillow.com. Click on the radio listener square and use the promo code Prager. 
And we're back. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Like I said, we're back with the co-founder of PragerU. His name is Alan Estrin, or as Dennis calls him, Living Martyr. Alan, I just want to cut straight into it and talk about uh, these five-minute videos. We put out our 500th this morning. You are the man behind the camera, working this out, making this happen. And Alan, I'm curious, where did this concept of the five-minute video come from? That in itself is a great question. I actually, I, I don't say this very often, but I, I'm, I'll say it now since we're celebrating the 500th video. I really believe, uh, sounds, I'm, I'm taking, as Dennis would say, a risk here, being very personal. I really believe God dropped the idea into my head. Mm. I don't know where it came from. I can give you a secular a more secular explanation in that when originally researching the idea behind PragerU, I, it, it occurred to me that the internet works in a certain way. And the only way this was going to work is that if we, we took the best ideas, this was the original concept, the best ideas from the best thinkers and distilled them down to their essence. Because there were a lot of, at the time, we're now talking 10, 11 years ago, there were a lot of universities that had gone online in the sense that they, they, they put their professors in front of a camera and talk, the professor would talk for 45 minutes. But I knew that no one was using the Internet that way, not in, not in a significant number. So that we we couldn't use that that model wasn't going to work for us. It wasn't different. It wasn't in any way compelling. So out of that came the concept of distilling, distilling, distilling. Five minutes sounded like a a, a nice number. Five is a good round number, and we thought that we could get people and we could hold their attention for five minutes. If someone said to you. Uh, I have a great idea, and they and here's the book. People would say, oh, well, look, I just don't have time to read the book. But if you said, I've got a great idea that I want you to investigate, I want you to know about, can you give me five minutes? Most people would say, okay. I can do that. You're absolutely right. And I think it's just brilliant to try to bring down all these and boil down all these major issues into five minutes. But I also imagine it's not easy. And you're the man uh, who, who works on creating these ideas and getting them built out into this five minute structure, as well as working with the presenters and having them inject their, their own influences and their own words into this. And there seems to be a particular amount of care taken with words when it comes to this five minute videos. You have, you have a certain number of hundreds of words, maybe 800 words you can put into a five minute video. So you have to choose those 800 words very carefully. Why do you think it's important to, to take care with, with words? A lot of people would say conservatives don't truly feel you need to take care with words. That's a, an accusation we get often from the left. But it seems like you do think it's really important. Why is that? Well, there, there are a, a number of different reasons. But one reason is this issue of we want to to communicate important ideas as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Just because one, one of the reasons why PragerU has worked is because we, we took a complaint that people had. The complaint was, I don't have enough time. 
simply, I don't have enough time to basically do anything except get to my next task, whatever that would happen to be. So we wanted to leverage, Dennis and I wanted to leverage that complaint into an asset. So that's another aspect of the five-minute model. Mm -hmm. And to your point about the care that we take, I mean, we, we have attempted to scale, to, to actually write down the number of steps it takes to make a five-minute video. It's over 25. Wow. It, and we keep adding steps. And if I, if I went through every one of those steps, it, it, we'd, we'd take up the entire segment. That just is to your point that great care is taken. We, it, these, this is not a matter of just, oh, let's write this down, mm -hmm. and, uh, or not let's write this, or let's write this down and record it. There is a whole process that begins before, we, a, a selection process, and then a process of writing the first draft, and then there are subsequent revisions to that draft and working with the presenter to refine it even further. And then that's just the first part of it. I mean, that, then we have to deal with the production side of it, and then there's all kinds of editing that goes on in the production. Sometimes lines are trimmed out of the production. So uh, it's very uh, – we're very meticulous, and I think that's one of the reasons why we have been successful, because we've been so careful. We respect the process. That I that is abundantly clear in in being involved in this and seeing the work that you do. And we're going to bring you back in the next segment, Alan. But I do want to know uh, before we close out here: Do you have a favorite five minute video? You've done five hundred of, of these. There must be one that sticks in your mind. I definitely I have a favorite. My favorite is the one we've just released. <laughs> so that means my favorite video is your video this week. Oh my goodness, Alan, that's amazing. And for those of you who have been around to hear it, it is uh, Why Do You Hate Conservatives? And let's get into the idea behind this video because, Alan, you came to me with the idea. Why was this the, the concept you wanted to go with for the 500th? Do we have time? Are we, are we, have, we have yeah, two minutes, have so yeah. We have, a, we have a little time. Oh, yes, I have time. Great. So, you know, we grapple with this all the time. As, as you so eloquently stated uh, earlier, your own style is not to be so confrontational. You, you don't want to lecture people. You kind of want to bring people along. Mm -hmm. So the idea behind this video was in, in, uh, it was inspired by you and your approach and I wanted to try to do something with you, and we did, of course, as we, we with all the presenters, we worked very closely together on this to do something where let let us let's try to make the uh, liberal argument that uh, against, as it were, against conservatives, and then let's just try to offer to people who lean left or in the center aren't sure offer because you you don't often get a chance to hear it, the conservative side of the argument, the reasonable conservative side. And, okay, once you hear these arguments, which is a big part of the, our PragerU style, have a debate with yourself. I mean, you talked about your own, your, your own transformation 
And that transformation was, in essence, a debate with yourself. Sure. That's what we try to do at PragerU. You're absolutely right. And I, I hope that by the time that people get to the end of that five-minute video, if they make it to the end, they feel a little less anger towards their opposition, whether you're a conservative or a left-leaning person watching that video. We all manage to have our beliefs and, and get to where we get on our own paths in life. And these are things that we go through as individuals that lead us to where we are. And we understand that at PragerU and are trying to communicate that to people and stop a lot of the hatred that's happening right now. So you can check out that video by going to Prager com. We'll be back with Alan. Good morning, everybody. I'm your guest host sitting in for Dennis Prager today, Amala Bonobi, and we are back with the co-founder of PragerU, Alan Estrin, a.k.a. Living Martyr. And Alan, we're going to get back into our talk about five-minute videos. Now, clearly, you had your finger on the pulse of the culture, knowing that people needed these ideas boiled down into five-minute videos, and you were going to be the person to do that. But did you expect it to take off like a rocket ship in the manner that it did after you started releasing these? Well, the, it didn't take off like a rocket ship. It, <laughs> it, 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 it started slowly, mm-hmm. and it, there was a lot of frustration at, at, in the early days. And there was a lot of discussion about, I don't know, maybe we should just, there's a nice idea, but we should just let it go. And then we had, I, I had my what I call my second revelation. And my background is in Hollywood, I wrote. TV movies. I wrote for shows like Touched by an Angel and The Practice in the 90s. So I had a, that, that's, and I taught at the American Film Institute for many years. So I, I know Hollywood and I wrote a book on Hollywood film directors. And I realized that when we were about 18 months or so, two years into this process, that we were making a fundamental mistake. I thought if we just made great videos, people would show up as it were on the internet and watch them. And then I realized, no, that's not the Hollywood model. The Hollywood model is you need to spend as much time and effort on marketing as you do on production. And we made a big decision at PragerU to do just that. And that's when things started to take off. We really focused as much attention on the production, as as important as they are, as, as on marketing, because... We didn't want to make video, great videos unless people saw them. We wanted to have an influence on the culture. And as you know, because you, you know the operation so well now, we have a very robust, I think we have one of the very best marketing departments in all of the Internet. Yep. And it, it's, it, it's just, and we keep growing and we keep expanding. We can't make people watch the videos. We, we can't do that. But we can make people aware that they exist. And we work, work very hard on all the different platforms to see that that happens. Yeah, that and was when a- they watch them, then, then sometimes, uh, a, a lot of times, it's one of our, our great achievements, people like you will, will watch them. And, and their their minds get changed, I imagine, is what, what he was saying there. Now, I'm I'm curious to, to hear from you, Alan, on this, and it's the idea of, of responsibility. Through, through PragerU and what you've created, there is an immense amount of responsibility, and I, I'm curious to hear whether or not he, he feels that. We can bring him back maybe in the next hour to discuss that. Uh, and 
I imagine there's a lot of pressure there with what I do there. There feel there seems to be a bunch of pressure because so many people are watching and we're very careful with our words and trying not to be misunderstood. But sometimes you can't help that. But we try to safeguard ourselves from that problem here at PragerU. You can check out our five minute videos by going to PragerU.com. That's PragerU.com. I'm Amala Bonobi, your guest host today on the Dennis Prager Show, and we are back with the co-founder of PragerU, Alan Estrin, and we've left the last hour with this question about responsibility. You all know the phrase, with great power comes great responsibility. I wonder if that translates to great platforms. So, Alan, let's talk about that. You've built a really big platform with millions of listeners who are watching what it is you have to say and the message you want to get out. What does responsibility look like uh, through that, that lens? And is it, if so, if you have responsibility there, is it something that stresses you or drives you? It does both. It stresses me and it drives me. Everything we do, we take great care in what we do and what we produce. And when you have a very large platform, which means you have a very large audience, you also have a lot of people who are fact-checking what you say instantaneously. Mm-hmm. So we, a lot of research goes into the videos. Everything is sourced. If you, we put the transcript up, we put all our sources up. We make, we try to be as transparent transparent as we can possibly be, and. If we make a mistake, we acknowledge that mistake, but we try not to make mistakes. There is, there is, there is a, a, we feel a responsibility to the audience. We want to get it right, but we want them to get it right. So we have to give them good information. I completely agree. Thank you so much, Alan, for being on. We appreciate your time today. It's a pleasure, Amala. Thank you so much. And let's let's continue, ladies and gentlemen, and talk about this idea of, of truth and wanting to tell the truth and wanting to be right in the things that you say, but also accepting the times that you do make a mistake. I think Alan made an important point there in saying that when we make a mistake, we're going to come forward and we're going to talk about that and we're going to own up to that mistake. And I think that is always an important thing to do. I go to college campuses now more often than I used to before. And right now, the conversation that I'm having is about my story, about my beliefs, but also about this idea of wanting to be closer to truth. Because in today's culture, we're being told that everybody has their own version of truth. It's his truth. It's her truth. It's my truth. And yet there's no objectives. There's no objective truth. There's no objective reality. And while I do think there can be different perspectives or or different instances and encounters that we get into in our lives that lead us down a different path, I don't think there are his truths and her truths and my truths. I think there is the truth. And if I'm wrong about something, and it's something that I go on my show and talk about, or something that I speak about in a conversation with a peer or a friend or a family member, and they say, you know what, I I don't agree with that, or I don't think that's right. 
by all means, tell me and let me know. I would love to know that it's wrong because it makes me get closer to truth. And when you're armored with truth, you have everything on your side, even though people want to hate on you for it. They will disparage you for it. They will call you all sorts of names, Nazi, bigot, fascist, sexist, misogynistic, all the names in the book you'll get thrown at you when you are armored with truth. But that's okay. And you'll find that in the instances where people do call you those things or throw that hate at you, it can be tough, at least uh, in, in the very beginning. But you'll find that those words don't mean very much when they're not truthful. The truth means so much and is so powerful. And when people want to throw untrue things at you, it truly does mean nothing. Now, speaking of the truth, let's get into this. This is a very interesting article that's come out. It's on uh, Breitbart as well as many other sites. The headline on this is poll. 64% of voters blame woke politicians for crime wave across the United States. And I saw this and I thought, oh, 64%. That's high. That means we have some left-leaning people who are coming out and saying, you know what? I think we can blame woke policy for a lot of what's happening right now. And we'll get into that woke policy. But first, uh, let's read a little bit. The latest hard Harvard slash Harris poll shows that 64% of voters say woke politicians are responsible for an increase in crime across American communities, while the other 36% blame other factors. Across political parties, the majority of voters blame woke politicians for rising crime. Among Democrats, for instance, 52% said woke politicians are responsible for the crime surge, while 75% of Republicans and 60% of swing voters said the same. Now we'll get into the woke policies that could be creating this crime wave, but it's interesting to hear that 52% of people who identify themselves as Democrats believe that woke politicians politicians are responsible. And of course, we'll get into the crime discussion. But what's really interesting to to hear this for me is that doesn't this make you feel a little bit better about the people you talk with about having relationships with people you may disagree with, because you'll find that it's not on every single issue. There's a lot of common ground to be found and to hear that 52% of Democrats can see that woke politicians are semi responsible, if not fully responsible for a lot of the crime surges that many American cities and states are experiencing right now is interesting. It means we have our eyes open. It means we see the way that these policies are affecting our communities. And I think that's what's going to change the way that we view politics right now. We're getting into an age where political discussions are truly affecting our communities day in and day out. It used to be that you could disagree on these things and go about your day and it didn't really affect your life all that much. But now we're seeing it in our communities with crime. We're seeing it in our schools. We're having conversations about lockdowns and masks wearing and and what medical procedures we get. It's truly starting to inundate every single portion of our lives. And as far as leftist policy on crime, we have this idea of restorative justice. It's an idea that I stood by when I was working for the left. And it's an idea that I pushed to the other young people that I was talking to. And it is really based on the premise that because we discriminated against African-American or black people in the past of this country, that we need to make up for that with 
present discrimination. You'll hear Ibram X. Kendi say words that are very similar to exactly that sentiment. We make up for past discrimination with present discrimination. Of course, now I stand on the opposite end of that debate, but that is what's pushing a lot of this restorative justice policy, as I called it back then. Zero bail policies, the plea deals that have been given out to people, the the reliance on skin color to keep you out of of the repercussions of your actions. This is what's being pushed. The defund the police movement and changing policing policies in a way that is not actually helping police do their jobs more efficiently and safely. I've done work here in in South Central LA with the, the police officers who are, are working at that station. And it is so interesting to hear what it is that they have to go through. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of background. There's a sheet that they fill out when doing arrests and taking their reporting where they have to answer, what race did you think the suspect was before you pulled them over? What race were they actually? Uh, what bias might you, might you have towards... And it's all an idea that police officers are fundamentally biased. It's an idea that they can gauge this bias. And there's a number of policies that now police officers are dealing with that are making them not wanting, not want to do their jobs. And at least I I understand that if you could lose your livelihood, if you could lose the place you hold within society and your community, why would you want to go out and do a job that is as dangerous and unrewarding as being a police officer in today's day and age? Then you couple that with the fact that they're going along, they're arresting people who are committing crimes and seeing those people back on the street the next day. It's got to be an unbelievably hard job to deal with when this is what is flying in your face day in and day out. And we'll talk about zero bail policies, this idea that because black people are often of lower socioeconomic status, that we should account for that when... uh, when applying bail to them after they've committed a crime. And I think there's a conversation to be had surrounding that. You certainly don't want to be imprisoning people with high bail numbers to where there's no possibility that they can do anything for themselves. But when it comes to real criminals who are committing crime, we're talking career criminals who are just getting into jail, out the next day, back into jail, out the next day, doing the exact same thing over and over. We need to take a stance on this as a society. And in my opinion, we need to take a strong one that is based on with a foundation of law and order. If you do not have laws, you do not have order. And the laws and the policies that we are pushing through, particularly those from woke politicians, are leading to an uptick in crime in these areas. And it's actually affecting the communities that they claim to be advocating for. These low-income people of color. These are the ones who are going to feel it. Those are the people who are going to have to bear the brunt of the policies being pushed. And again, we talk about this more in depth on my show, Unapologetic Live. You can check it out on all podcast platforms and on all social media. We'll be back. Hey, everybody. Back tomorrow. But sitting in for me today is Amala Bunilby. Young 20s. She's phenomenal. She has her own podcast up at PragerU. She has a vast following and for good reason. She's bright, lively, happy, wise, and a fighter. You'll understand why in just a moment. Dennis is so sweet. Good morning, everybody. I'm the sit-in host, Amla Benobi, guest hosting for 
Dennis, and yes, somebody gave me a podcast. I don't know why, but now I have one. It's called Unapologetic Live. It's on all podcast platforms and social media, and you can find me by typing in my name, Amala Epinobi. I know it's a mouthful, but you guys can do it. I'm loving talking to you guys on the phone, so if you'd like to call in, it's 1-8-Prager-776. That's 1-8-Prager-776. And let's take another call now from Nancy in Philadelphia. Nancy, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Hope you are, too. I am. Uh, I am enjoying your show. And um, I've been saying for a while now that um, we're living in a world of no truth and no consequences. Mm -hmm. And we're living in a world of crime and no punishment. And all of this is thanks to the mainstream media and the leftist politicians. You're absolutely right, Nancy. Thank you so much for calling. It's so interesting to to see the world that we're in right now, to see the culture that's surrounding us, because it's not beneficial to anybody except those who are in power. And what's interesting about the, the discussion for me is that it's really not a battle that it is between me and some random other person on on the street who happens to be a leftist or a left-leaning individual. It's really us against elitists who are pushing these ideas in academia, in our corporations, in our government agencies. They're the ones who are truly responsible for what we're dealing with right now, and we are the pawns who are battling it out here on the ground. And you're right in saying that there is no truth and there's certain no accountability. Thomas Sowell says in, in one of his many famous videos that meteorologists used to be the ones who got paid to get on TV and, and lie to you and were never held accountable for those lies. Now anybody can do it and the intellectuals are doing it. And we've never been in a time of, of such little accountability. You know, if you were an architect responsible for the creation of a building and that building collapsed, guess who's going to get a call uh, that very second? You, the architect. But these intellectuals come along and they write in their journals about all these ideas and these ideas grow and grow and and build an, an audience of other pawns who push them. And when the ideology fails and people's worlds are crumbling right in front of them due to their susceptibility to these ideas, the intellectual is never held accountable. We never go back to the architect who constructed the ideas that are now responsible for the social decay that we are experiencing. And it's time that we start held, holding them accountable. When we talk about these issues, not only is it important to address the fundamentals behind the issues, why they are wrong, why they are leading to bad outcomes, but also who's responsible for pushing them. Who is the reason that we're having these conversations? Who is responsible for what kids are learning in, in school today in, in American society? We need to find those people and take them to task. Because that's what is truly the battle that we need to fight. Because you have to nip these ideas in the bud and also hold accountable the people who are creating them. I'd like to take another call. This one from Tom in Alvin, Texas. Hi, Tom. Hi, Amala. Um, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Uh, I've heard that you're becoming so popular and influential that even Kamala Harris is starting to tell people that the K in her name is silent. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I don't know. You know, I've always said it's unfortunate how close our names are together, but I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, there was a caller last hour that was talking about the, um, the gender issue and uh, the horrible treatment that... 
uh, doctors are providing. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me that uh, several years ago, I think it was Target that decided that they were no longer going to label toys as boys' toys and girls' toys. And now I'm hearing that if a boy plays with girls' toys or a girl plays with boys' toys, then they are being told that they are the opposite gender. Mm-hmm. But there's no such thing as boys' toys and girls' toys, according to the left. So I don't understand how they can make that distinction. Yes, there are there, their ideology around this and the ideas that they push are just riddled with inaccuracies. And thank you so much for calling with that with that statement. When we talk about this, it's so important to point out those inconsistencies and the holes in the things that they believe. And that is a huge one. The people who say that gender roles don't exist are suddenly mutilating little boys who express a gender role that is particularly uh, or traditionally female. We have to point that out. That's, That's extremely important. And it's very true that that is what's happening. And to the the feminists who are maybe listening to the show right now, what does true liberation looks look like when it comes to gender roles? True liberation looks like men being able to express whatever femininity they have in whatever way they see fit while still being men. It looks like women walking around and being able to express what are traditionally masculine views or tendencies while still being women. It means expanding the idea of what it means to present as a woman or to present as a man. But instead, we are forcing people into these rigid gendered boxes through surgeries and hormone therapies and puberty blockers instead of just accepting that little boys can like feminine things and little girls can be masculine. And more often than not, they grow into their own masculinity as boys and their own femininity as girls through a journey that we call life. I was a tomboy as a young girl and I loved to go to boys and girls club after school and instead of hanging with the girls, I'd play flag football with the boys or foosball or basketball and that's what I did. I hung around boys as a little girl. I wanted to wear pants. I liked boy things. I also had my feminine tendencies that were coupled in with that. But that's what girlhood and growing up as a child is about. It's about exploring and creating avenues for your child to explore what they like and dislike. It's not about creating gender confusion. And had I grown up today, my goodness, I might have been put on puberty blockers, which is just a scary statement to be able to make. Allow children to express themselves, but express themselves hopefully within the confines of the sex that they were born in. That is the truly liberating thing about your own human journey. Let's take another call from Scott in Dallas, Texas. Hey there, how are you? I'm doing well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing good. I I actually grew up in that little town in southern Minnesota where you gave that talk at Winona State. And I was just curious, what what did you learn from the reaction of the crowd uh, from that event? Hmm. Thank you so much for calling, Scott. And thank you for that question. For those of you who don't know, I did a recent speech at Winona State University in Minnesota, and the faculty association at the school decided to tell faculty and students they could take the day off of school if they were uncomfortable with my presence and felt unsafe. Me, a 22-year-old, 115-pound soaking wet girl, was keeping faculty, professors, and students away from school that day, even though it was a speech that they did not have to attend. And I find this to be a very clever tactic 
tactic. Label yourself as unsafe so that you don't have to confront ideas that you disagree with and ideas that very well may be right. So I arrived to Winona State University, not with leftists protesting me or having anything to say in challenge of my beliefs, but with chalkboard messages that they had written all over the campus. I'm talking rainbow chalk all over the sidewalks, writing about how I'm a bigot, how I'm a fascist. They labeled me a Nazi. Believe it, a, a, a 22-year-old biracial female Nazi just hanging out amongst you guys. So they labeled me a Nazi. They called me a pedophile grooming sympathizer. Any name in the book, you, you name it, it was on the campus written in chalk. Very similar to what a five-year-old child would do is what these leftists did on the university campus. Only four left-leaning students actually showed up to the event to ask questions. And to those students, I would like to extend uh, applause. Thank you so much for actually showing up and challenging my beliefs in a respectful manner. But to the faculty and students who decided to stay away from school and to not confront these ideas and to not hold class that day, they point out everything that's wrong with liberal education in America. It's no longer liberal education. I think we can be clear about that. These issues began in academia. They festered in academia and they remain in academia. And academia is where you solve it. Education is where you start to fix these problems. But no, professors and students decide to stay away from schools instead of being challenged. Being challenged is one of the most important things you can go through in life. Even if you end up where you started, that process of challenging and restructuring your beliefs or get engaging in an argument with your beliefs is going to make you a stronger person. I'm not there necessarily to change people's minds. I'm just there to say, hey, we can express ideas outside of those that we normally agree with and we won't be harmed because of it. We're going to live through it. We won't be bruised or battered because words are not violence. You can check me out at PragerU.com or at Unapologetic Live. And we're back. Now, I the, the left loves to talk about ki- pipelines. Uh, they'll talk about the school-to-prison pipeline, which is this idea that uh, black kids go into school and are trained and, and just forced into a life that eventually puts them in prison. They'll talk about the alt-right pipeline, which is apparently a pipeline that exists on the internet where you'll get one right-wing commentator like Ben Shapiro and suddenly you're down the hole of, of right-wing propaganda and you're, <laughs> you're an alt-right identifier by the end of it. Let's talk about the academia a pipeline for these horrible ideologies and maybe we'll have to coin a term on the conservative end for what leftists are doing in academia with these sets of ideas that then go on to other parts of our society and let's get into this pipeline so that we know where these ideas come from it's important to know this stuff now first we'll pick a set of ideas you guys could think about fat studies which is now a thing that people are studying in school critical race theory gender theory since that seemingly is something that we're we're really moved by and motivated by fighting uh, in, in the calls today, pick any of those and, and start to think about them. Now, each of these ideas start with a moral impulse. I'm going to run with critical race theory for today and for today's example. It starts with a moral impulse, which is important to note. A lot of these people who promote these ideas do truly think that they are being compassionate and doing the right thing, and they are motivated by their own ideas of morality. With critical race theory, you have this moral impulse that racial minorities are historically oppressed in American history, and now we have to 
uh, take on this moral obligation of helping them in the present day and age. This is an idea that's been expressed by Derek Bell, Gene Stefancic, Richard Delgado, Kimberly Crenshaw. These are very popular critical race theorists which, whose names you'll find if you do any research into the structure behind these ideas. So this group of a few people shared this moral impulse with the world and they share it through academic journals. So they come up with these ideas and start writing them now in, in getting them reviewed by their peers and publishing them, of course. So they'll write out a, a brief history of American racism and the transgressions that we've committed against black people in this country, which is abundantly clear and true. And we all know that this is the truth and we all think this history should be taught. So they'll go through the, the slavery and the Jim Crow era and the, the subsequent damage to black America that these policies and that slavery caused. And they'll use it to jump to a broader conclusion. That's important. They'll sprinkle kernels of truth throughout their writings, but use it to jump to a broader, more radical conclusion. And with critical race theory, you have this jump from, yes, we had a history of slavery, to now America as a whole is racist. It's built into the foundations and systems of, uh, of our institutions, and therefore, we must tear down the institutions or reevaluate the institutions in order to alleviate the racism that is baked into them. In a paper titled Critical Race Theory and Introduction, Richard uh, Delgado and Jean Stefancic wrote, quote, Still by every social indicator, racism continues to blight the lives of people of color, including holders of high echelon jobs, even judges, end quote. This is why you'll hear the likes of LeBron James and Lizzo complain about the racism that they face in America and how oppressed they are, even though they are multimillionaires and have an abundance of wealth that they've garnered through the systems and institutions in this country. But nonetheless, the ideas persist. They're written in these journals, and these journals are then published one after the other. And then these writers uh, of these journals go on to become tenured at their academic institutions. And guess what? They get to publish more. So they push their ideologies to their students and then they publish. They push and publish and push and publish and continue. The cycle goes on. And soon you have classes and degrees that focus around the subject matter that is written in these journals. You have critical race theory classes. You have fat studies classes. You have gender studies classes, so on and so forth. And of course, through these classes, you get dedicated students who then become devotees to the ideologues. And this is where... In, in terms of critical race theory, we have our Ibram X. Kendis and our Robin D'Angelo's who go on to write books about how to be an anti-racist, as written by uh, Ibram X. Kendi, and White Fragility, written by Robin uh, D'Angelo, who tells white people that they are inherently fragile, inherently racist, and they carry on a power and a privilege simply by virtue of being born white. And of course, these books go on to be published and pushed and published and pushed and suddenly they're in schools and academia as well. And you, you know, the, the only natural question here is what happens to the students and the academics who disagree with what these ideologues are pushing? Can't they speak up? Can't they stop these journals from being published? Well, no. Because baked into these journals are also insults that they throw at you for disagreeing with the ideology. You disagree with critical race theory and you're a racist. You disagree with fat studies, you're fat phobic. You disagree with gender theory and you are a transphobe. And so on and so forth. So they've managed to safeguard themselves from any form of criticism by throwing out these words. 
So now you have a made-up ideology with made-up demeaning insults to coincide with it, and suddenly you are getting these insults thrown at you, and you are unable to defend yourself because of the box that they've built with their ideology. And an analogy that I like to use for this is it's like waking up in the morning and finding that a prison has been built around you. And of course, you're freaking out, why am I suddenly in prison? And you try to escape. And as you're trying to escape, the people who built the very prison that you are now living in beat you down and say you're a criminal for trying to escape. That's what these ideologues have done with these made up journals and theories that they've created and now pushed on American society through academia. And of course, the people who learn these ideas then graduate from college and they move on to get high echelon jobs in every single industry of influence here in the United States of America. You have them back in higher education as professors and teachers and, and faculty, like we saw at Winona State University. You have them in big corporations. You have them in Hollywood. And now they're influencing a new generation of people who will grow up with the very same BS ideas that were published in these journals and pushed. And we're here to combat that. You can check out me talking more about this at Unapologetic Live on all podcasts platforms and all social media that's the pipeline ladies and gentlemen and we're back i'm your guest host for today amala epinobi sitting in for dennis and i'd like to go back to taking some calls to hear from you all i'd love to hear from tom in california hi tom how are you i'd be a fool to complain (laughs) i love to hear that (laughs) what are you calling about tom so you keep saying that uh, the theories are made up. A lot of theories are made up by nature. I just wanted to point out that the theories are, number one, wrong wrong, and, and full of lies. Sure. Yeah, I, I thank you so much for calling and thank you so much for that point. Yes, that's an important distinction to make, that the theories are based on lies and they're not in line with reality whatsoever. When we think about these things like fat studies or gender theory or critical race theories, yeah, so there there are theories that are born that end up being uh, a depiction of reality or at least in tune with reality and these are not at all. I mean, fat studies is a great example. We now have a line of students learning about how oh, obesity is not not a health problem and and that in fact you can be healthy at any size. You have magazines like Cosmopolitan publishing morbidly obese models and saying that this is a picture of health. And while I don't think the people should be unpositive about their bodies. I don't, I think you should accept your body in the form that it's in and love yourself in the form that you're in, but you should recognize when a health problem is a health problem. And we seemingly have an issue with acceptance of reality. And these theories are in no way, shape or form based on reality. Tom, you are right. They are based on lies. Now let's hear from Dominic in Dallas, Texas. Hi, Dominic. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Of course. Uh, number one, I am obese. I have some health problems, so mm-hmm. uh, I don't want to hear about uh, that I am healthy. I'm healthier than I should be, but I still have issues. Sure. And the reason for the call, the reason for the call is I have the uh, I have some recommendations for those who feel oppressed, and this includes no matter what your race, no matter what your religion, no matter what your beliefs are. Here's how you fight oppression. You get an education. You get a job. You respect people. You respect the rule of law. You stop multiplying like rabbits and expect the government to raise your children. Hmm. I think that's the first step 
in combating oppression. Thank you so much for your call, Dominic. I think there is some truth in there. I there For a long time when I viewed myself as a, a victim in this country, I used that as a crutch in everything I did. Luckily, I was still successful despite my worldview. I, I worked really hard in, in high school. I made sure to get a job as soon as I was able to. I got scholarships into the colleges that I wanted to go to, and I wanted for nothing because of the family that I grew up with and because of a drive that I had to be successful despite my ideas of victim hood. But had something happened to me, I would have had an excuse for it. And it would have been the excuse of oppression. And unfortunately, so many people utilize their oppression and use it as a crutch to explain away the problems that are, by and large, self-created in their lives. And we have to take some responsibility for ourselves. There's this idea that continues to grow, especially among young people right now, that we are not meant to be uncomfortable in our lives. We need safe spaces. We need cushions from offense and hardship and oppression and victimhood. And there is a nugget of truth in there. We do want to safeguard our children from people who are constantly trying to battle with them or oppress them or victimize them in some way, shape or form. But that doesn't mean that life is free from offense or free from challenges. In fact, you should seek out challenges. You should seek out making yourself uncomfortable and striving to get out of that form of discomfort. And that's something that I grappled with as a young person and didn't want to face. And now that I'm 22, still a young little baby, I'm beginning and learning to face that more and more, pushing myself in ways outside of politics to just make myself uncomfortable, whether that's with eating healthy and and striving hard to do that or or going to the gym or just trying to find beliefs that challenge the ones that I hold near and dear to my heart and see if I'm wrong in in them. And that's an important phase that we all must go through. And honestly, I shouldn't even call it a phase. Something that we should do throughout our entire lifetimes is constantly challenge ourselves. And you'll find that in the moments of of luck and breeze and cakewalk, you're not really growing much as a person. Life is easy and you're, you're skating on, on uh, the, the track that is life. But when you challenge yourself and you overcome those challenges and you overcome that uncomfortability that you put yourself under, you find you grow so much as a person. And those are the times in my life that when I look back, I remember the, the most fondly and, and that have stuck in my brain the most because there, there are times where I truly grew as a person and challenged myself. And I think so many people need to hear that message. Make yourself uncomfortable. Challenge yourself. We'll be back. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.